to Luke chapter number 22. Continuing in our study of Bible doctrine and the doctrine of the church in particular, this is message number 65 entitled, The Lord's Supper. We will be looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now in the last message we looked at the Last Supper, which was the last Passover that Jesus ate before his crucifixion, and we um, could also call it the Last Passover, as it really was the last um, Passover um, observed that uh, we might say that God had sanctioned um, before the sacrifice of Christ, and that it was fulfilled um, in his death. Now, we can identify the place and the progression of the events that we have of the Last Supper within a traditional Passover observance of that time. We know that Jesus kept the law by appearing in Jerusalem and eating the Passover with his family, uh, which in this case was his 12 disciples in an upper room on the evening of the 15th of Nisan. Now, the Bible account doesn't give us every detail, of the Passover observance. But we do have enough to understand the context of the Lord's Supper was indeed the Passover Supper. Well, this might lead us to, to wonder, well, why aren't we given more details? In other words, there, it could be even more spelled out and, and could be even clearer um, about this Passover observance. Well, I think we're, we're given what we are at least because what we are given is important for us to know and to understand. To understand the setting of the Lord's Supper, the eating and the drinking of the bread and the wine is, is what's commanded for us to observe and not the Passover itself. And that really is what's focused on in the biblical accounts. Also, we are given what we are to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures as Jesus brings the Old Covenant Passover to its end and establishes uh, a new supper that is to be observed by his churches until he returns. And it really is what the focus is on as we look through these accounts and as we compare them. So how then are churches to observe the Lord's Supper? If indeed this is a command, as we have seen that it is, it's a part of this commission that uh, Christ gave to his churches to observe all the things that he has commanded. Well, Paul calls it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 20. And he describes it being observed 
when the local church gathers together in one place to eat the bread and drink the wine to show the Lord's death in a repeated observance until the Lord returns at the end of the age. So I take that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 to 26. So I'll go over that again if you, maybe you are, are taking notes. Paul describes the Lord's Supper as being observed when the local church gathers together in one place to eat the bread and drink the wine to show the Lord's death in a repeated observance until the Lord returns at the end of the age. And again, I'm taking that definition from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 to 26. So we see, in, particularly in the 1 Corinthians passage, Paul gives us simple elements um, for this supper, and that, it, that we are, as a church, corporately memorializing the Savior. And these simple elements and this memorializing of the Savior are what's important, what's essential about this supper. So we want to be careful. We don't want to reduce the Lord's Supper to merely a legal ceremony and a procedure where we make sure that we just get everything right. We also don't want to burden the simplicity of the Lord's Supper by trying to enhance the Supper with added rules and and various um, things to try to make it better or more holy or or more reverent or something in some way. And both of those mistakes are uh, mistakes that can be made, that have been made uh, throughout history. Um, So we don't want to, to make those mistakes because we don't want to lose the focus of the Lord's Supper, which truly is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins through the new covenant for all those who believe in him. That really is the focus. That is, that is what should be prominent, and that is what we should um, be centered around. So in this message, we want to identify then the elements of this Lord's Supper and the purpose of this supper. And we'll do this under two questions. First of all, what are the bread and the cup? And secondly, why do this? Why observe this Lord's Supper? So we'll begin with the bread and the cup. And let's start here in our passage in Luke chapter 22. Uh, We do have some preliminaries to take care of in verses 14 to 18. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. All right, so these verses at the, at the start of this passage, they give us an abbreviated form of what is the second cup of the Seder. And we've been talking about those things over the last few messages. Luke simply says that Jesus gave thanks. He took the cup and he gave thanks, which means that he blessed the wine as was customary. And after the second cup of the Seder, they would have then eaten um, the unleavened bread, uh, they would have eaten it with the bitter herbs. Uh, in, in, in some cases, these would be um, almost like sandwiched in with a, maybe a couple of pieces of matzah and would be dipped into um, the sauce. That would be the, um, 
the fruit sauce and be eaten. Then after that, the roasted lamb would be eaten with various sides that, that were on the table. And of course, during the eating of the lamb, as, as at certain other points in, in the uh, Passover, they would have drank the non-ritual wine along with eating of the lamb. Of course, the Passover being a, a meal featuring meat also meant that they would not have eaten or drank any dairy products during this supper. They, they could have had some other beverages uh, available as well, um, possibly water or, or, or something else. So this is what Luke is telling us about here. This is the second cup, and we can see that it is distinct from the third cup, which is mentioned in verse number 20 that comes later on. So this is a little earlier in the supper at this point, verses um, 14 to 18, and in verse 19 kind of skips ahead. And obviously the, the different gospel accounts, um, they do that. Sometimes they have things in a, in a different order. Um, and we went through some of those, those harmony aspects of, of the gospel accounts um, in a previous message, and so we're not going to go over all of that again. But verse 19 is where we get the beginning of the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is where Jesus does and says and commands. So, beginning in verse number 19, And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul all record this instance right here. So let's just read each account. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Mark chapter 14 and verse 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. Luke chapter 22 and verse 19 is the verse that we just read. Then the next one will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Paul wrote, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Of course, you can see all of these accounts are very, very close um, just very little variance between them uh, when Jesus took this bread. And, and again, it's another instance of where, where is the focus when we are reading about this Last Supper in the biblical account. Obviously, it is on this Lord's Supper part as we get a, a more detailed um, description and, and one that is um, given more fully in, in each of the accounts. So this taking of the bread would have been after the lamb would have been um, another break from Passover tradition. So in the traditional Passover, in the customs of the time, the, the roasted lamb would be the last thing that would be eaten. Now, it would be followed by the third and the fourth cups of wine in the Seder, um, but that was those within that would have been singing. It would have been any more eating of any food. The lamb was the end of that meal. So Jesus, at this point, taking bread, again, he has departed from the customary Passover observance, and he has taken the bread, 
and were not given. Uh, Luke tells us that he took the bread and gave thanks. And some of the other accounts said that he blessed it um, before he, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Now, we're not given the words of the blessing, uh, and we don't know exactly what it was that Jesus said. And again, this is a break from the, the customary um, Passover. But we, but we know at every step along the way, these blessings were said and were pronounced. So we, we, we can certainly assume that it is something in a similar vein um, that Jesus gave at this point. He gave the words of the blessing, whatever those were, and he, he broke this loaf, this um, flat loaf of unleavened bread. And he was, again, following this same manner as the custom before, but introducing something new at this point. Now, the word for bread that is used in all of these accounts is a word that just simply means bread. There's no other adjectives that are used with it in these particular instances when Jesus took the bread. The word for bread, uh, the Greek word that is used, can refer to leavened bread or it can refer to unleavened bread, um, either one. It, it really doesn't matter, just the same way that our word bread um, can be applied to both. Well, the context, though, is the observance of the Passover. And unleavened bread was used, and unleavened bread, in fact, was all that was present or permissible, going all the way back to the earliest commands of the Passover and even going back to the original Passover event itself. Now, Paul does specifically refer to unleavened bread in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Now, there he is speaking in reference to the Lord's Supper in the context of church discipline, but still yet makes that point and refers to the bread as unleavened bread. Well, Jesus explains that the unleavened bread that he blessed, broke, and gave them represents his body. The unleavened bread then commemorates the body of Jesus Christ, the body that was offered in a once-for-all sacrifice for redemption from sins. And this was, represents his body because Jesus, in his flesh, would bear our sins. Jesus, in his flesh, would physically suffer the penalty for our sins and would make satisfaction for our sins to God in his body. And this bread that he took, that he blessed, that he broke, that he gave, said, this is my body which is given for you. So this bread represents the body of Jesus Christ given for all of those who believe in him. And we get to verse number 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Well, verse number 20 then gives us this third cup in the Passover Seder, and the cup Jesus used as the second element of the Lord's Supper. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke and Paul all give us this record as well. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 to 29. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Mark chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. 
And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 22 and verse number 20 that we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So again, this was the third cup of the Passover Seder, the cup that was also known as the cup of blessing. Each one of those cups had its own different um, significance. This was known as the cup of blessing. And in fact, Paul refers to it as such in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. Paul wrote, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Here again, so Paul is referring to um, the Lord's Supper, referring to the bread and to the cup, and specifically refers to this as the cup of blessing. Again, identifying it as the third cup of that Seder observance for the Passover. Now the words that are used for this element of the Lord's Supper is two. It's it's either cup or it is fruit of the vine. It's it's used that way in Matthew and Mark and Luke, um, and we see that in the reference to Paul as well, either cup or fruit of the vine, always referred to in one of those ways. Now, the words did not refer, in other words, referring to this cup, does not refer to a single cup. In, in, in other words, there were actually the four cups of the Passover Seder, and then, of course, there had been non-ritual cups as well that would be used. The point is not that there was only one cup present. A lot of people have, have sort of latched onto that and, and made uh, much out of that. that. That's not the point at all, and it certainly was not the case. By referring to it as the cup, it's identifying that particular cup, that point in that Seder observance, which in this case was the third cup, the cup of blessing. And so it is entirely consistent to refer to it that way in the Bible as well as in these other Jewish writings that we have been talking about, which give us um, so much information as far as the Passover observance in that time. So by this time, the Seder was focused on that four-cup observance. This, this really sort of formed the backbone of this Passover observance as it unfolded. You had the first cup that began it, and then the second cup, and the third cup, and then the fourth cup, which signaled the, very, the complete end of the Passover, and so on. And so they are, again, referred to that way consistently as they identify the different parts of the the Passover Seder itself, they identify them according to the cup of which they are attached to. Now we also, this element is referred to as the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is used in this reference which developed from the blessing for each cup. In other words, in the observance of the Passover itself, each of these cups, just as the different food elements, they all had a particular blessing that was spoken over them before that they would be drank or before the food would be eaten. And so each of the cups 
included a blessing before them that included the line, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. So this was the blessing that was given before each cup in the Passover Seder. Now, fruit of the vine is obviously an idiomatic expression, and it refers to the red wine that was mixed and used in the Passover. So, in other words, in, in the Mishnah, when you read the, um, the prescription and, and the Mishnah, these would be the, uh, the rabbinical laws, the, the, the customs of, of the fathers and such. These would be the rabbinical laws that would um, regulate the observance of the Passover as along, with, along with a whole lot of other things. So in the, in the Mishnah, you have both the prescription that red wine must be used and it would be mixed with water alongside with, with these blessings that refer to the fruit of the vine. So again, it was an, an expression that came to be attached to the cup as well. So the question then is, how did wine become an essential part of the Passover as it clearly was by the time of Jesus, but actually much, much earlier than that. Wine, for one thing, was never included in the leaven that had to be removed from the homes for the feast. Now, when the leaven had to be removed, it would refer either to the starter that would have to be removed from the homes, or it would refer to bread that was actually leavened that had already been baked. It was the product of of leaven. It was leavened bread. So it referred to both of those, and that all had to be removed from the homes for the entirety of this festival. But wine was never included in, in those things that had to be removed from the homes. Not only that, wine was also a part of the different offerings that were given that, that required unleavened bread to be offered at the same time. Well, from very early, and we don't know an exact date, like we can point to an exact date to say, but from very early on, wine was used as essential to the feast. Because, and this was the rabbinical reasoning, in other words, this was the Jewish interpretation. Because the feasts were commanded to be celebrated with joy. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 14. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widows that are within thy gates. And then, of course, the next verse goes on to say three times in a year they'll they'll appear um, before the Lord and so on. So because they were commanded to observe these feasts with joy, the Jews interpreted that as necessarily involving wine, which the Bible says was given to gladden the hearts of men. And so from very early on, Wine became an essential part of the Passover. As I understand the development of the Seder, um, wine was used, then it became, it became more, of a, more of an object of the Passover with two cups and then eventually going to the four cups, which was uh, common in the day of Jesus and even um, still being observed uh, by Jews today. So four cups of wine were used. And the four cups of wine were used to represent the four words, all right? These were the four words spoken of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Bring forth, deliver, 
redeem, and take, those found in Genesis chapter 40, verses 11 to 13. There were four cups used that represented the four cups of God's vengeance on the nations that had afflicted Israel and would afflict them in the future. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 25, Jeremiah 51, 7, Psalm, Psalm 11, 6, and Psalm 75, 8. And then, there were, then the four cups were also used to represent the four cups of blessing for Israel. Psalm 23, 5, Psalm 16, 5, and Psalm 116, 13, which I believe has two mentions in that one passage. So this is how that, that the four cups came to be such an essential part of the Seder. In fact, really shaped the observance of the Passover from the time that it began to be used. Well, furthermore, when we think about wine in the Passover, we understand that wine is the blessing and it is the drink of Messiah's kingdom feast when Jesus comes. So in the Old Testament prophecies, as they're looking forward to the coming of that kingdom, it is spoken of in terms of a great banquet, of a great feast that is spread for the people. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse number 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wine on the lees well refined. So this... This is the banquet, this kingdom feast that is anticipated and prophesied in the prophets and looked forward to in feasts such as the Passover. Wine on the lees actually describes wine that has undergone the second stage of the two-stage process of fermentation. Wine that has been aged, and as wine is aged, it becomes uh, what is described as um, drier as being a fuller body. Um, it, is, it is aged for taste. It is a, aged for um, its strength as well. The lees refers to the sediment or to the, or to the dregs. And so the, as, as wine would be left to ferment, the dregs the, and the sediment and all such would come to the bottom. And those were left undisturbed. And eventually that fermentation process w- will stop. And when that fermentation process stops, you have clarified wine that is on top of the lees. And so that clarified wine would be siphoned off and would be drunk. And this would be considered good wine. This would be uh, somewhere at, at least a, a year's worth of fermentation, a year um, to three or, or what have you. Now, in some cases, if those lees were disturbed, if they were stirred, if, if they were uh, in some way um, shaken up or whatever, then that fermentation process would start again, and, and wine could be aged even further than that. So that's, that's what is referred to here in Isaiah chapter number 25. In other words, this is considered good wine. It's not necessarily um, maybe the oldest of, of the vintage, but this is considered good wine. And that is what is said to be um, anticipated in this banquet feast. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, 
and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They also shall make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall be no more pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So here we have reference to that time of that kingdom in which wine is one of those signal blessings of that time that comes to um, the earth and, and Israel at that time. So Jesus made reference when he, when he says here that I uh, will no more drink of this fruit of the vine until the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus made reference to not drinking this celebratory wine with his disciples until he drank it with them in his kingdom, obviously, which comes at his return. Well, the question that comes up a lot of times and has certainly been uh, the issue of, of debate for, um, for uh, many, many years, and that is, well, but could the Jews have used... Um, unfermented grape juice for the Passover rather than the red wine, which is in all of the um, Jewish writings that we have. Well, the Passover was observed um, in the middle of the month Nisan, and we have we looked at that calendar um, recently of the Hebrew calendar. So the month Nisan is about six months after the end of the grape harvest and about three to four months before the beginning of even the early grapes of the grape harvest. Obviously, out of season for any sort of fresh grape juice. There is actually no credible evidence that the ancients could preserve grape juice unfermented. No one even thought so until the temperance movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. So there is, a, there is the idea that they preserved grape juice um, fresh, and this is based on a misunderstanding of three different ancient historians, Pliny, Cato, and Columella, which all three of them gave a similar method for keeping the grape must sweet, as they said, or as the translation gives. Must is the result of crushing grapes. Grapes are crushed with their skins, with the seeds, and in some cases even with parts of the vines. Um, and this is all, all these various things are done for different reasons, flavor and, and, and strength and, and such. But they are crushed that way. And it is said to put this must, which is the result of crushing these grapes, to put this as fresh as possible into a jar stop it with a lid, seal it with pitch, and then leave it submerged in water for a month. And even some cases, uh, some references even say up to a year, and that it will be preserved sweet. All right, well, fermentation is a natural process where yeast interacts with sugar in juice to convert it to alcohol. And that process has not changed. Now, in today's world, uh, we have technology, um, which, which does help um, in terms of there's different ways of, of adding, making additives in um, that will help wine to uh, become sweeter, to, to give it different flavors, to make stronger alcoholic content. 
As I understand the process of winemaking, naturally, wine can only get to about a 16 or 17 percent um, alcohol, and that to get any further than that takes the more modern methods of distillation, um, which uh, we have come up with in our ingenuity. But nevertheless, the process, even though we may have some different gadgets and, and different things, the process is still exactly the same. Grapes are crushed, and that must that, that comes from the crushing of the grapes with their skins and the seeds and such almost immediately begins to ferment. And there's nothing in this recipe that Pliny or Cato or Columella gives, there's nothing in this recipe that would stop fermentation. Crushing the grapes and taking that must as fresh as possible, putting it in a, in a jar of some sort and sealing it and submerging it in water, there's nothing done there. The only way that that could be done is that the, the yeast would have to be killed. The, the, it would have to be prevented from any, any bacteria and, and such within that must. So there's nothing in that recipe that prevents fermentation. And when they said keeping it sweet, this is, again, where a, a misunderstanding comes in. They did not mean keeping it unfermented, but rather preserved from turning acidic. Because that's what's going to happen. When you crush grapes, it will become wine or it will go acidic and become vinegar. One of two things is going to happen with it. Unless, of course, we now in more modern times have the process of pasteurization by which we can keep it uh, unfermented and, and keep it refrigerated and, and so on and keep it for a much longer time. But though one of those two things is going to happen. It's going to turn acidic or it's going to become wine. So the method that is described by Pliny and, and these others would produce a very low alcohol wine that could be further fermented or it could be drank as it was. So again, it would not be a high alcohol content. It would not be considered a high quality wine, uh, which those terms would still be used today. A sweeter wine would be a lower alcohol content wine because the the yeast converts the sugar into alcohol. So more sugar, sweeter, means less alcohol in the wine. So this would produce a low alcohol wine that could be fermented again or it could be drank. Well, wine was used in the Lord's Supper. We see that from the references in the Bible. We see that from historical references of the Passover that we have as well. Wine was used in the Lord's Supper. It was said to represent or to symbolize the blood of the new covenant, which, of course, the writer of Hebrews referred to as the better covenant. The new covenant has one once-for-all sacrifice that actually accomplishes redemption, the payment of the redemption price to free and cleanse us from sin, something the writer of Hebrews said that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. And so this was given, this wine, this fruit of the vine, this cup was given to commemorate, to symbolize and represent that. Well, that brings us now to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 17 to 34. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. 
that ye come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Well, clearly the Lord's Supper was commanded to be observed by the church when they gathered together. However, what we read in the letter to the church at Corinth, which incidentally was uh, most likely written earlier than any of the gospel accounts that we have, one of the early letters of the New Testament that was written, this letter to the church at Corinth, the church at Corinth had some problems, to say the least, with their practice of the Lord's Supper. And Paul is obviously writing here to correct them for that. Now what Paul describes as going on sounds so strange to us. To think that the church in Corinth could be having this meal, this, this big feast in connection with the Lord's Supper. And at this time, there were some that were filled with food, some that were drunk with wine, and others at the church would not partake. Now, that seems such a strange scene. Can you, could you imagine having a meal out here in, in the fellowship hall and, and just coming and, and, and sitting down and eating all of the food and, and looking at, at others and, and just letting them stand and wait and... and when, when we're totally finished, if there's anything left, you're welcome to have some scraps. That's something so unthinkable to us. We can't even imagine that scene. However, what was happening in Corinth was completely in line with the Greco-Roman banquets of the day. These banquets maintained a strict social class distinction. So the wealthy... And the important society members were given places of honor. Now, of course, there were um, some private banquets that would be for the poor and, and, and needy and such. But, but these Greco-Roman banquets 
given, the, the important members of society were given these places of honor. The poor, though they could attend and, and sort of observe, they weren't given seats at the tables. They would watch and they would listen. And after all of the, the feasting was done, they, along with the servants, would be given opportunity to eat whatever was left. And it appears that the church in Corinth was keeping a feast very much in the Greco-Roman tradition and that there was little to nothing left over and there were some that were going away hungry. So the, the point is, Paul asks them, do, do you not have your own houses to have feasts if that's what you want to do? In other words, they, they were observing these cultural traditions and putting the Lord's Supper right in there in the midst of that. Well, the Lord's Supper, of course, observes no social distinctions between rich and poor, between male or female, which male and female was another distinction that was observed strictly at these Greco-Roman banquets. No distinctions between free men or slaves. No distinctions between nationalities, whether they be Jew or whether they be Greek. So the, the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table is not organized like a Greco-Roman banquet, observing these sort of class distinctions. Every member of the church is to come to the table and to partake according to Christ's command. Now what the Corinthians were doing Paul says, was not the Lord's Supper. They were calling it that, and I guess there was some bread and some wine, but it was not the Lord's Supper. And Paul said so. And he recalled to them what is the very essence of this supper because it had gotten lost in their cultural banquet that they were having as a church. He recalls them to this essence of the supper. What, what is it? It's bread and wine shared by the local congregation as an act of communion with Christ and each other as members of his body. That's why Paul says, you, you have houses to eat in. If, if, if someone is hungry and, and needs a feast, will you eat that at home before you come together to eat the Lord's Supper? So this Lord's Supper is an act of corporate witness to the gospel. It's not, a, it's not about being hungry and being filled in, in, in a physical sense. Now, when we read in, in various writings of, of church history, especially among some of the earlier churches, it, it does seem very likely that the Lord's Supper was, was oftentimes attached to what they would call a charity feast and, and that sort of thing, and, and, and those things would be put together. But we can see that Paul very clearly here says that that's not the eating of the Lord's Supper. In other words, it needs to be distinguished. It needs to be distinct. Whether or not you, you eat a meal, I don't think is the point. I'm not, I don't think Paul's saying, under no circumstances can you eat anything else other than, than the Lord's Supper. But clearly, the, the problem in Corinth was that the Lord's Supper was getting lost. And, it was, and the symbolism of the Supper was being completely messed up by their cultural banquet traditions. And that's what Paul is telling them not to do. 
They were not, Paul says, discerning the Lord's body and blood. In other words, they weren't distinguishing it. They were, they were getting lost in this cultural banquet. And consequently, their corporate witness was lost as they pretended to observe the Lord's Supper. But Paul says we're observing it in an unworthy manner by, by removing all of the meaning of this supper and doing it in the way that they were. And of course, Paul went on to say that this abuse led to many of them being weak and sick and even dying from suffering the chastisement of the Lord. So again, the, the point is not whether or not um, you know, something was eat or maybe the, the Lord's Supper was observed um, after a, a fellowship meal or, or something like that. But the, but the point is, is that the Lord's Supper needs to be distinguished. It needs to be distinct. It doesn't need to be lost among a lot of other things. And another interesting thing about Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is, the, is that we also see when we, when we look at the very essence of this supper, what it is and what it is about, then it just crosses all sorts of cultural boundaries. It's, it's not defined by the various cultures where it is found. Rather, it's the eating of the bread and wine as Jesus gave it and doing so in memory of him. So the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of the death of Jesus Christ as the new covenant sacrifice for all who believe. Churches then are authorized and commissioned and commanded to keep this supper when they come together in one place until Jesus returns. Now, as a local body, we gather, we eat, we drink this supper to remember what Jesus has done for each of us and to corporately show the world the death of Jesus until he comes, meaning that it's an ongoing observance. And of course, you'll notice that we, that we don't have any sort of frequency indication. How often should the Lord's Supper be observed? In, in the earliest churches, as I understand, uh, they observed it sometime closer in connection with the Passover. Uh, that changed a few centuries um, later and, and, and so on. But it just says as often as you do this. And so it is something that churches, yes, should do and should do in the right way and should do for the right reasons and for the right purpose.